opening was i was going to say i'm not really a western guy i'm not a laze a saturday away by watching westerns on you know network television but then the more i thought about it the more i was like ah you know actually there's there's a few westerns on the list you know i got unforgiven it's a fantastic movie uh once upon a time in the west pale rider true grit both the original and the remake and then of course you know tombstone I'm not one of those people who can quote Tombstone nonstop, you know, uh, like I could with Star Wars or Star Trek, but still a great movie and very relevant as we discuss today's episode, Spectre of the Gun. But before we do that, let's get to intros. My name is Matt coming to you from Houston. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's doing so well. It's doing so well. Coming to you from Austin, it's me, Matt. And coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. I'm actually uh, on the the planet of the Melcots today. Oh. I'm in a strange mist. <laughs> I don't know where anything is at. Yeah. The Enterprise is gone. Can't get a yeah. hold of it. No. My trying to doesn't work. So true. So true. Uh, okay. So let's jump into this. So, of course, we know that Spectre is the name of the James Bond villain. Uh, so it only is a matter of time before they showed up in a Daniel Craig. Oh, wait, sorry, wrong notes. Sorry. <laughs> it's for another podcast we may do someday. Uh, no, but it uh, might surprise you to know that Lee Cronin, who wrote this episode, is actually not a real person at all. Lee Cronin is, in fact, Gene Kuhn. Bum, bum, bum! Kuhn, after taking a small break from Trek, uh, went over to ABC to write for a show called To Catch a Thief. And uh, writing not only for a different show, but on a completely different network was a no-no. So, we must remember as we go back and talk about this this season that uh, we're in the early stages of season three here. Roddenberry was, uh, you know, still taking the load of producing it early on. So he had given assignments to, uh, two assignments to DC Fontana, who was leaving, one assignment to John Meredith Lucas, who was also leaving, and then leaving uh, six, more than any other writer on season three, to Gene Kuhn. But of course, his contract on the other show and everything uh, said, you know, no, you can't can't do another show. You can't write for another show. You can't do anything, especially for the show that you just left. So all of his notes and everything were handled by phone, and uh, he could never be seen actually on the Paramount lot. Because, you know, that would give away the whole uh, Lee Cronin right. and his Gene Kuhn thing. Uh, but of course, as we know, after, uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes, Gene Reinberry steps down. Justman takes the lead on this episode because he's hoping that he's going to get the big chair. So it was uh, Justin's idea to add Morgan Earp killing someone early on in the story to give it a little more action. And uh, also to show that the Earps were not to be messed with, man. The original ending of this episode had Kirk lying in ambush of the Earps at the OK Corral. but And then Kirk yells to the Earps that the guns are trained on them. And we should end this charade. 
he yells that to the Markosians, uh, which were actually at this point in the uh, episode called Shawnians. But everyone felt that that sounded too much like uh, Native Americans, and so they decided, oh, let's let's go ahead and change the name of that. The idea behind this ending was also that it's not Kirk's normal mental patterns to lie in wait. Therefore, that meant that the humans must be insane and can't be held accountable for their actions. So that's why the Marcosians come around at the end and don't kill everybody is because apparently humans are nuts. But needless to say, uh, Justman didn't love this ending, so he comes up, the, uh, up with the idea that the bullets are not real. Shortly after this script was finished, Fred Freiberg uh, was made EP on this episode, and he initially didn't like this episode. He was worried about doing a sci-fi Western, not realizing, of course, that that's what the whole show is even based on. Gene Roddenberry, too, was worried about it, looking uh, like another parallel Earth story. And uh, so this is part of what leads to the whole, like, fantasy half-sets kind of look to it. So then that way it's not like a parallel Earth story. Per Roddenberry's earlier mem memo, they changed to Chekhov. Uh, it was a, Chekhov was originally just going to be a regular security dude who beams down with them and dies and then stayed dead. But he decided that they were going to uh, put Chekhov on there uh, and then add a lady using him to prove that death here is, is, is a real death or not a real death once we get to the end. Uh, it didn't take long for Freiberger to warm to the story, especially that he knew how much his EP liked it in Gene Roddenberry and that also Mr. Cronin was in fact Gene Kuhn. Fun fact, History 101. The Earps, to the chagrin of Sheriff Behan, instated a gun ordinance in Tombstone. This is all real stuff. Any cowboys refusing to surrender their firearms upon entering the township were considered to be outlaws and subject to arrest. The Clantons tested this policy and, of course, ended up paying for it. The Earps later claimed self-defense. Behan testified on behalf of the Clantons, saying that he witnessed Billy Clanton gunned down in cold blood after raising his hands and saying uh, he did not want to fight. Which side was telling him the truth, of course, could never be determined, and the reputations of both the Behens and the Earps were damaged forever. DeForest Kelly, as you can imagine, was delighted to be back on the uh, OK Corral. Kelly had appeared in the 1955 presentation of the gunfight at the OK Corral for the CBS anthology, You Are There. He played Ike Clanton then, Two years later, he was Morgan Earp for the big screen version of the famous story. And now, here he is a decade later playing Tom McLowry. Both Shatner and Nimoy were given early drafts of the script, and Shatner went to Roddenberry, and Nimoy went to Freiberger. They both had plenty of notes. It was decided after this that maybe we won't give the cast anything but the final draft of the script. <laughs> I won't go through them all, but uh, it's funny to look through all of the guest performers that were in this episode. And of course, all of them, not surprisingly, had been in uh, Westerns in both on film and on TV. Vincent McVitie is back to direct this episode, but sadly, it's his last. He was always a day behind and always had always had problems getting the scripts in under budget. Considering we're going into season three, where Paramount is seriously tightening the purse strings, this unfortunately caused this to be McVitie's last day. All the actors said that his direction in this episode was superb, and sometimes even though they didn't get it, 
once they watch the episode, they fully understand where McVitie was going. So we get roughly a dozen episodes every season that involves some form of telepathy. Okay. But the kind of telepathy we see here, in which the telepaths can totally control your mind, make you think that you're someplace you're not, dealing with things that you're not. We haven't seen this level of of telepathy since the unaired pilot, Mm -hmm. which will then come to us as the cage. Where they do, they have these conversations about telepaths can totally screw with you, man. You know, mm-hmm. you don't know what's real. You don't know what's fake. You don't know what's going on. You think you're mixing a concoction of some basic chemicals to make a gas grenade, but you're not. You're making a cupcake. <laughs> but one and, of the interesting uh, things in in the cage, if we uh, look at, is that the thing still actually worked, right? So he imagines, you know, he throws the bomb, but they make it look like the bomb didn't do anything. But in real life, it actually had. Whereas right. in this one, he's, they think they're mixing a, a bomb up, but nope, no bomb. Well, you know, some of the stuff they did, you know, like blowing the top of the mountain off with phasers. They, well, they had phasers. They brought them down. Yeah. And they were just like, what do we do? They've got phasers. You know, it's not like, uh, w- what if we were to make their phasers appear as if they were four feet to the left? And so when they will make a noise and they'll walk over to it and they'll come back and they'll, they'll go to the wrong phasers. They didn't do that. Right, because yep. they're like, well, damn, we're just going to have to hide the result of the phasers. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, I mean, he goes out searching for chemicals, right? So at no point are they drawing on things that they really have. Right. So he wanders into the apothecary. And what, you know, why should we assume that anything there was real to begin with? That's kind of what I was always thinking. I was like, what if that's just water that they're mixing? It says, I mean, you know, sugar. It, it says it's, water. It could yeah. be like a dream state where, like, you have a dream in which you go and get water, and you wake up and you're like, oh, there's no water here. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> so I thought the the totality of the opponents of the, the Melkosians of the Melkots mm-hmm. of their uh, telepathy was something we, despite seeing an awful lot of telepathy. Yeah. You know, you think the man trap, but all she did was make them see somebody else. Yeah. You know, some some pretty girl or uh, the guy's wife or what have you. And then we have Charlie X. Obviously, that's an episode about telepathy. Yes. But he's not, uh, he's more got extraordinary powers, right? It's all real. What he's doing yeah. is real. Uh, where no man had gone before is another one about people gaining powers. Um, everything to do with, and we see in this episode, Spock's mind melds, right? Yep. It, mm-hmm. It's constrained. It's not about, I can trick you, although I think once or twice Spock does uh, get people to do stuff. We just recently watched the, uh, the episode. Uh, which one was that? The uh, Omega Glory? in which we see an unusual use of Spock's telepathy. But for the most part, it's what we see here. A little bit of mind meld. I'm going to share my mind. I'm going to give you the mental fortitude to imagine that uh, the bullets could not hurt you. Uh, It's basically, uh, you know, 
a get-out-of-jail communication device. Okay, we, we backed ourselves into the corner with uh, the devil in the dark. <laughs> we have a silicon-based life form. What do we do? Exactly. And that's it. Super quick. I'm through all of the behind-the-scenes stuff on this until we get to uh, to the uh, uh, end of the episode. I also have some notes sprinkled out throughout. But, you know, as we do, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. All right. Well, when we start off this episode, we are right in the middle of it. Red alert! Ah! We open on Spock, and he's keeping an eye on an object that seems to keen on intercepting the Enterprise. Kirk asks Spock for answers, but not calling him Spock, calling him Science Officer. This is actually a formality that gets blamed on Freiberger and company, but it actually comes from GR, because he felt that Kuhn's leadership, uh, that under Kuhn's leadership, that uh, all of the, uh, all, all, everybody on the bridge were becoming too chummy. So he wanted to get it back to a formality where it's like science officer, navigator, that kind of thing. Spock, as we've seen a lot lately, has no answers. It might try to communicate us or it might try to kill us. Well, thank you, Spock. That's a lot of help. Although he's he's famous for the, that kind of. You know, so we don't know what we're encountering. Right. But like this is the list of things that are plausible. Mm hmm. Do you have any evidence that one might be preferred over the other? No. We'll just have to wait and see. That's right. And hope we don't die. It does then communicate. We are the Marcosians. Leave our area of space. This is your only warning. Kirk and us hear it in English, but Spock hears it in Vulcan. Chekhov hears it in Russian. Uhura hears it in Swahili. Interesting. It's got its own universal translator or something. Or it's telepathy. Kirk's orders are to make contact with the Malkosians. And that's what he's going to do, he says. He tells Chekhov to make orbit around the planet. Let's see what they're hiding, he says. It's funny that he instantly goes to that, I thought. Like, he's like, oh, they must be hiding something if they uh, don't want us to come near them. Well, that's kind of the idea you should be going into a uh, diplomatic or first contact relations with, but that's all right. Once on the planet, they are in the mist. And, of course, you know my theories about mist. Stay away from mist. They're always bad. What? Oh, I should have told you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot. It's bad, too, because none of their instruments work. And suddenly, they are met by a Malkosian in person. At least, I guess that's what that big, lumpy thing with eyes is supposed to be. It's a very weird-looking alien. Credits! Where are the credits? Well, you know, uh, for, an, for a series famous for its... We're going to give you a little nose prosthetic, and boom! Alien! Mm -hmm. As opposed to the, you know... Uh, uh, I can't remember what they call the bar in Tatooine. Uh, well, just the cantina. The cantina, there you go. Yes. <laughs> you know, with that level of, uh, oh, these are not basically humanoids. Well, it's funny. I think that the original series goes a little bit crazier with the aliens. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, really then, a next generation where they lean heavily into. Yes. We're just going to give you a little nose crotch. And you've got like the Sheliac and and things that like are luminous, right? Because uh-huh. that's that's a Star Trek staple. Yeah. Luminous beings are we. <laughs> that's the other one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you think <laughs> about, uh, you know, the episode now, man, they're all starting to blend together now. I used to be able to name episodes. Uh, but, you know, it's the episode where they beam down to the planet and the war is going. No, no, it's not the war is going on. But, uh, oh, the Klingons are trying to take over, and no, nobody's doing anything to stop the Klingons. Right. And so then they become luminous beings. Yeah, that's another perfect episode of that. But, you know, we look at, uh, we, but some of the other, you know, aliens that we've seen, like this one in this episode, are, you know, they they really kind of take a swing at it. Doesn't always work, of course, but, hey, you know, proud of them for giving it a, a try as opposed to making everybody with uh, pointed ears or... Uh, a crazy nose bridge or, or, you know, whatever it becomes in the next generation. Yeah. So like the, the interesting question, cause it's basically, we're going to create a cast of something or we're going to build it out of foam or right. Paper mache or whatever. And then we're just going to like have it glowing eyes and surrounded by mist. And, you know, maybe we'll dapple some weird light on it, different colors. That's mm-hmm. it. Right. Yeah, we're not, we're, it's not going to move. It's not going to be animated. And of course, when they come back and you know give us some modern CGI, like I loved the opening of this episode, in which we kind of pan across the Enterprise, and mm-hmm. you know we, we get some beauty shots there for the first ten seconds. Yeah, I love that stuff. You know that they yeah, they, do. <laughs> they could have could have given us some digital animation to make that thing look slightly more real but yeah i opted not to and i, and I get why because that would have been a a whole new giant project yeah exactly and especially with the mist involved and everything else that would have that would have been a, a pretty tough call which is actually also why we don't see the beam down sequence in this episode is because of the fog in this episode they couldn't get the special effects to work right also worth noting, you know, it's, if we think, too, about why aliens look more alien in the original, because, you know, we have this whole canon now of the preservers and, you know, seeding life, and it's all came from one place. So the more humanoid that they look in Star Trek, the more it, like, fits within that whole idea of what canon is now. So with the preservers and whatnot. Yeah, so we have both kind of in-story and out-of-story reasons for not giving us Malkosians. Although they don't even give us, you know, little dudes like, uh, I can't remember his name now. Clint Howard. There we oh, go. Oh, Clint Howard, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could actually hear the gears grinding. <laughs> Clint. It's probably Howard. just across the construction across the street. That's probably all that was. <laughs> or at least what I thought it was. So here we are, Ray. We're beginning at the beginning of season three. We have an excellent cold open, right? The Malkosians yep, yep. don't want us here. They want us to leave. We didn't leave. Now we're on the planet of mists, and we and and we think that nothing works. You know what are they hiding? You know, Kirk kind of put that whole idea in a in our in our heads. What are they hiding? They must be hiding something. Uh, why don't they want the Federation here? And of course, you know, ultimately, always the question uh, in a Star Trek episode of how are we going to get out of this? So, well, you know, I, I, pretty spectacular. They, so, this episode is built around this problem of Kirk is supposed to make first contact. The yeah. Melkosians don't want to, but Kirk is going to force it. Mm-hmm. Right? He's going to be Perry coming to Japan. 
Yeah. Right? He's going to fo- force open the closed society. And I feel like that's kind of out of out of character, right? Often right. they're trying from, like, as Fox says, I'd rather be welcome. And what we don't get is, I can certainly imagine a plausible context, right? It could go everything from, we've got to make contact with the Melkosians before the Klingons do, to, uh, there's another episode in which they, they violate a perimeter because we, we need a, a docking space in this part of space because space is big and not you know not every planet is has enough life that you can create this kind of stuff so you do have this interesting question right and i i think their resolution to it their ultimate explanation of why the Melkosians don't want you to come that humans are barbarous and full of killing is very star trek and so once the humans, once Kirk can can prove, yeah, we don't we don't go around killing stuff, we don't indulge in revenge, you know, we're not murderous. Then the Melkosians are like, oh, in that case, totally, deep down, you'll be welcomed. That felt very Star Trek. The resolution to it. The problem, though, it just felt a little bit like, why why are we doing this? What do you mean? Why are we doing this? Well, what, what, they don't want us here. Yeah. Why don't we just, you know... Leave? Yeah, leave and come back in, you know, five years and go, Hi, it's us again. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a try. Give it a try again. We're nice. Maybe you've heard more about us. You know, we're cool. It's cool. Yeah, I, that's true. There is no, like, backstory as to why we needed why we needed to, other than just like, hey, we want to be pals with everybody. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. So, so we go. go ahead. Some people, uh, this appears on some lists of best episodes or essential episodes that you have to watch. Yeah. And, you know, a few commentators have pointed out their commitment to making contact and, you know, a peaceful contact and thought that was important. But and I think it's true. It's one of the things that, that gives us that opportunity to have that very Star Trek ending, right? That we've been tested by yet another very powerful alien and found to be okay, which uh, doesn't get, uh, what's the trope word for when you flip a, a trope? Inverted? I feel like that's not right. That sounds okay. Okay, well, I'll use it. Uh, that doesn't get inverted until Q. Right, oh. that we get tested mm-hmm. by a powerful alien and found wanting. Yeah. Which allows that alien to keep coming back several times a season. <laughs> and perhaps even showing up in Picard. <laughs> right, season two. <laughs> Absolutely. So, back from commercial, Malkosin says, You were warned to leave, but it was disregarded. You are from the outside. You are a disease, it says. Now we're going to make you fight the Gorn. No, exactly. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you aren't barbarous. Surprise. Uh, Kirk says, we come in peace, but we will defend ourselves if necessary. Your pleas are heard, and the sentence is passed. Wait, was that a plea? I don't know that that was a plea. Wait, wait. Uh, and, 
And the sentence is passed. And that sentence is a trip to the Paramount Backlot, complete with a set from a bad Western with horses, six shooters, and a bar. Sets may not be complete. Valcosians may, uh, may be unclear as to what Tombstone looked like outside of a movie set. So that's where they end up, in the middle of a uh, not completely put together, Malcosian, unclear what Tombstone looked like. But the crew put it all together. Well, and I think there's a question which has to do with the fact that sometimes what we see is meant for the audience, not for the characters. To, you know, to what extent oh, does this look this way? Because they, they really don't reference these, these buildings don't have walls. Um, I mean, th- there's a, a bit of a reference about uh, perhaps they get partial knowledge of you know, Tombstone from your memories or whatever. Right, that's what um, I was going with. Yeah, but I, I think part of it is we're supposed to look at this and go, oh, they're in a dream state. They're in a, they're in a mm-hmm. place that's not real. It's all created, you know, illusion. In the, in the way that, you, like, your dreams don't necessarily, you know, you'll see cabinetry, but you won't see what's, you won't know what's behind them. But in real life, if you look at cabinetry and it's yours, you know my soup is here, my dishes are there, that has tea. But if, if we did like a mock-up of my kitchen to be part of a dream, we might not, there's no back, right? It's right. just cabinet doors and there's nothing behind it because it doesn't matter. It's not real. It's like a video game from like the mid nineties where you can't open or touch everything. That's a, uh, that's right. The it's like, there's like doors and you're like, how come some doors open and some doors seem to be just part of the wall? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the crew put it together, the American ancestors who pioneered the frontier of North America. Their violence of that pioneering will be the instruments of our death. Dun, dun, dun. A man shows up from the sheriff's office. He calls them all Ike and other names. They're playing the roles of the Clintons. So here Kirk, like, remembers the names of everybody in Tombstone. Right. And we live in an era that is much closer to the time of Tombstone than they do. And uh, I don't think I, other than Wyatt Earp, I could name any of them. Well, once well maybe again, Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you couldn't name the, the, the people on the Clanton side necessarily, right, without being interested in the West or being somebody who could quote uh, Wyatt Earp or Tombstone. Right. But... Uh, one of the things that we forget, and let's do the math. Uh, so 1881 versus 1969, 68, where are we? So let's say 1970 and 19, and 90 years. Yeah, it's right? I mean, it's 1968, but yeah. You know, so totally possible to have known uh, 1880 by 1940, you would be old, but 80, you'd be 80 years old, right? And so you could have been a young person who meets this 80 year old in 1960 and then is watching this episode. And you're like, I, I, I know somebody, right? You know, great granddad remembered this incident. Yeah. Whereas we today have not quite, right? I'm, 
I'm a good reference for how long Star Trek is ago. Uh-huh. Right? So, you're, you know, you're tossing on almost 50 years mm-hmm. between this episode and... I, what, what I'm saying is that we don't remember the West the way yeah. the audience of Star Trek in 1969 would have remembered the West. Mm-hmm. So they're far enough away that they can put that nostalgia on it. It's not news, right? Yeah. Uh, so in this in this time of uh, the invasion of Ukraine, for example, people watching the news are full of World War One, World War Two movies, right? We make more movies about World War Two than almost anything else uh, in in the political. You know, warfare. We don't make a lot of World War One movies, for example. Um, we don't make nearly as we have almost no Korean War movies. Uh, there's a there's a decent number of, of Vietnam era movies. Yeah. Uh, although a lot of them don't necessarily focus on the combat in the same way that we can just imagine tanks and you know planes and soldiers and so forth. And so there's, there's a couple of events in our history, and the West is one of them, which just lives on in the movies. And so they would have been just, you know, how many of these people worked in Westerns themselves? Obviously, Divorce Kelly is huge among them. But, you know, when, when I'm going to say our first dozen episode, we kept talking about people whose experience had been making Westerns. Right, Bonanza and all yeah. those. Yeah, uh-huh. And so... For the audience to go, oh, wait a minute, this is the OK Corral. Totally get it, right? Know this story. To us, you know, 50-some-odd years later, I don't know that we'd, except for the success of Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, would have been like, oh, yeah, the shootout at the OK Corral. I get it. Right. Fortunately, he knows. He's able to go... From an even further time away. Yes, exactly. And and pick out the details, which would be lost to those of us. Very much so. Only 130 years later. Well, and and also a like mind blowing, you know, because like I've noticed this a lot actually as I get older, and I'm sure other people have as well. But you know, it's interesting when you're younger and you think about. I mean, like if we think about like Back to the Future, right? Thinking back to the 50s, you know, his parents are going to high school and everything. Oh, that was so long ago. It was crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now it's, you know, now I think back to what was 30 years ago. And you're like, oh, okay, great. Cool. It seems <laughs> it was, like. Well, yeah. Perfectly never. reasonable. Yeah, not that long at all. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I graduated school almost 30, you know, high school almost 30 yeah, years yeah. ago. So you're well, like, because, oh, my gosh. Because now we are the parents in Back to the Future. We're no longer. Exactly. Yeah. But in so I I saw an episode online of I think it was to tell the truth, right? In the early 1950s. Yeah, yeah. And there was a guy on there who was in the theater when Abraham Lincoln got shot. He was like two, yeah. I mean, he was like four or something, you know. I, but he I like, see the video, yeah. Yeah, he has the memory of it. And that's like, you know, yeah. to think that like someone on television was there. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, so so the idea that that you could know somebody or that someone could be on to you know to tell the truth or some other game show who right. remembered the OK Corral, which is yeah. twenty years later, way more plausible. Yeah, that was crazy. 
So Chekhov asks asks who the battle at the OK Corral was. It was that it was the Clantons. So uh, that's how all this is going to down. They're playing the Clantons, and right? And uh, the, uh, the, the the bad guys are because heroes. on the one hand, Chekhov as the foreigner, I don't know yep. your crazy history. Yeah, is able to say, uh, "Please, Mister Exposition, <laughs> for those of us who are unfamiliar, fill us in." And on the other hand, uh, we get a nice, "I don't know this story because why the heck would someone living in the twenty-third century from Russia like be so steep?" Oh yes, Ike. Ike was left-handed, wasn't he? I I preferred his drinks to be, uh, you know, <laughs> blended in such a way. <laughs> of course we what we don't get from Chekhov in this is like oh it reminds me of old russian story yeah because they too have a frontier yeah uh since they are playing the clans and the erps are obviously going to be played by uh some fake malkosians then uh or malkosian thought i don't know yeah, I think they're just totally illusionary dudes. Yeah. Spock says history cannot be changed, he says. So we're going to die because we can't we can't change history. We know which that I the Clatons die, so which I thought was a weird like response okay. to oh, we've been put in a tele telepathic scenario. Right. They're like wh why not immediately go to the oh, this is a test where the aliens test us. I mean, Kirk seems to act that way the whole time. And uh, I, I, one gets why Spock would offer resistance. You know, like, there's no way to escape. We can't. Your, your efforts are futile. Resistance is futile. But I, I would have thought that it would have been about this, this telepathic experience that we're having is so complete, so holistic, so totalizing. You know, how, how are we not going to just fall into the trap no matter what we do? Won't the Malkosians just lead us directly into our... Because they're, they're here to punish us, not to test us. I think, I think, Captain, your analysis of the situation is wrong. Isn't this a punishment, not a test? Aren't they done testing us? Didn't we get tested and fail, and now we get punished? In which case, they'll just kill us no matter what we do. We run, we die. We fight, we die. We develop a counter-strategy, we die. Why, why would they let us go? Because we, you know, but we, we must try, you know. <laughs> Typical you Kirk. See, yeah, you'd see when the Kirk would go, I, you know, I don't care. Cause if, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to mm -hmm. go down doing what I do. Finding a way out. Reprogramming the Kobayashi Maru. Mm -hmm. You know, cheating death. I, right. I, I can't not do it. I can't just accept my own death. Okay, that's cool. You're the captain. We'll do it your way. We'll, we'll try. We'll, we'll You've been right out. before. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Not as many times as you will have been <laughs> by the time <laughs> you're trapped on the asteroid with the Genesis devices. <laughs> right. But, you know, whatever. And I just felt like a little bit of extra script work, a little bit of extra... Why would, why would Spock be committed that... You can't change history when this is obviously not history. It's because they, they, as you point out, they don't do a parallel Earth, right? They're not in 1881, forced to relive, you know, and everything they do just leads them back into the historical timeline. Instead, you're like, this is a mind game. 
I mean, if the Melkotians get it wrong, they get it wrong. If the Melkotians respond to what we're doing in a, in a way that's favorable to us, they'll do that, right? Yeah, sure. Give it a, give it a shot. Go for it, Kirk. So it's less that history cannot be changed and more of like, uh, yeah, who knows? They're, they're putting us in a situation where history says we're going to die, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah that's you know, more I mean, Oftentimes, life. we've seen that like uh, in, the, in the cat's paw or in, you know, patterns of force and so forth. The, the, the captain and so forth are captured and he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, uh, that's it, man, we've been captured. We're chained to a wall next to a skeleton. Or <laughs> we're in a pr- prison next to those guys with their crazy blonde hair. And yeah. Right. You know, they continue to try to make friends, escape, work the situation, try to turn the situation to their own advantage. He's trying to hack the code and Kobayashi Maru this situation. Right? That's what he does. And so we see this all the time, but I, I just don't uh, I just don't feel like Spock's explanation of the problem. It just felt like <laughs> you totally misanalysis, dude. The guy who should be like pinpointing it, who should be like, yeah, yeah. I'm all over it. And yeah, the guy who should be saying, I think the analysis is that we're going to be punished. Right. Mm-hmm. We've been tested. We failed. Uh, I, I don't think, think I know how it's going to go down. I don't think we can escape this captain. And the captain's like, but I must try. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that is your jam. Okay. <laughs> we'll roll with it. Because that's what Spock would have said, right? That's your right. jam. Yep, that's your jam. <laughs> that's your jam, sir. <laughs> totally so there's a ruckus in the bar. and What was that? Totally sounds like something Spock would say. Absolutely. There's a ruckus in the bar. Outruns a man who is quickly shot. It's all real. It's all real, man. Real men, real death, we find after they uh, test him out and see if he's real. Kirk and the crew enter on the half-created bar. A girl runs up and kisses Chekhov, calling him Billy. She pulls Chekhov over to a table. The bartender walks over, happy to see the Clanton boys. Kirk and the rest, uh, uh, and the rest join Chekhov at the table. Surprised to see you in town with Morgan Earp here, they say. Morgan Earp, the man who kills on sight, says Kirk, rising. This makes Morgan twitchy. Kirk just standing makes Morgan twitchy. And uh, he stands there, looking as if he's ready to quick draw with Kirk. Spock intervenes, telling Kirk to slowly put his hands on the table. Death here is permanent. There's no reason to make it happen now. The barmaid puts her hands on Chekhov's shoulder, talking about uh, showing the herbs who's boss around here. Morgan then walks over, saying, uh, you sully yourself hanging out with these men, and roughly pulls the girl away. Chekhov stands to defend her honor. Morgan, ready to duel again. It's Kirk's turn to intervene. Just leave us alone, he pleads. Five of you here. <laughs> You'd like me to draw, wouldn't you? Says Morgan. All right, I will. Soon enough. All right, tough guy, whatever. Soon enough, he says again, walking away. Bartender brings them back some bourbon. 
Yeah, they've been smearing your name all over this town, so you better watch yourself. Oh, we will, says Spock. We will be watching everything extremely closely. Well, thanks, Spock. That's that's great. The barman needed to know that. Uh, then the barmaid comes back and says, Billy, you were just so wonderful, and they begin kissing. Uh, into a bit of Kirk trying to stop Chekhov. And Chekhov, who then says, well, we are supposed to maintain good relations with the natives. Kirk then sends the barmaid away, and they get back to breaking down what the heck's going on here. Kirk then realizes that no matter what, what the other people see, they only see them as they're supposed to be. They don't see their uniforms. They don't see their phasers. They don't see their hair. They don't. All they see is who they're supposed to be. Ed just continues to think, Ed, the bartender, Ed just continues to think that he's joking. I'm not Ike Clanton. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what I think, Ike. Uh, it only matters what the Earps think. This felt to me very much like the scenario that I've already outlined. Right? Uh, we're going to break out of here by telling them we're not the Earps. Captain, yeah. Uh, this is a punishment that's been set for us. I don't think that's going to work. And it doesn't work. Right? Everything they try becomes unsuccessful as they try to leave the area and get hit by right. the force fields. And... Right. Yeah, because yeah. the Malkosians are like, this is uh, this is how we punish you. Yeah. There is no escaping here. That's right. It's uh, And it's funny, too, because the Malkosians probably could just kill them. But right. they're giving them this, like, you know, this five, six-hour time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's coming. It's coming for you. Here it comes. And, and of course, we know nothing about the Melkosians. Right. So we don't, we don't know whether this is secretly a test. I mean, that's how it plays out. In yes. The, in the... When this episode is set next to these other episodes in which aliens test the humans to see... You know, whether they're good dudes or bad dudes or who yeah. should live and who should die. This obviously fits in that category. Absolutely. But the Melkotians could also just be like, we like gladiatorial combat. We want to watch you die. We want to see you squirm. We want to see how you how you deal with it. And then because we, are... we do get those right in which mm -hmm. the purpose is to kill the crew. But they somehow prove themselves. Well, you've we've, we've reconsidered. We will not kill you. We'll put you back on your ship and let you go about your business. It's also like bread and circuses too. You know, they're like they're they're airing this. You know, they're streaming this live over the right. internet. <laughs> the <Malcosian laughs> internet. Uh, so Kirk heads over to see the Earps. He again tries the same thing. This is unsuccessful. Neither listen to him. One of them even punches Kirk. Kirk wraps his rounder. Uh, wraps the armor of the sheriff around his back. Wyatt draws. Kirk just pushes the sheriff off of him and throws his hands into the air. Draw, says Erp. Kirk says that he won't. Draw! But then Wyatt is stopped by the other Erp. We'll get our chance. Five o'clock, Clanton. If you're here at 501, we'll shoot you whether you draw or not. Dun, dun, dun. You thought Wyatt Erp was a hero. Back at uh, it. Yeah, Go so ahead. I mean this this is interesting, right? Because I do think 
that the idea of the Earps as heroes versus villains would have been much more just like, eh, it was, it was, you know, cowboys, it was rough, it was, you know, kind of a mess. And we live post-Tombstone and Wider, in which actors like Kevin Costner take on the role of Wyatt Earp and transform him into the obvious protagonist, rather than just, uh, so who, who you want to be this time? Are we the clans of the Earps? You're like, I don't know. They're just all tough guy cowboys. In, in a way that, like, playing mafiosos, right, would clearly just be like, yeah, you're bad, I'm bad, we're just going to shoot at each other, it's a gang, let's go out and have some fun. We are like, it's Kevin Costner, right? Or who is Yeah, he's Irvin? the good guy. Who's wider than the other one? The Tombstone. Uh, Kurt Russell? Kurt Russell, right? Again, you're thinking he's the hero, he's the yep. protagonist, he's the good guy. And, uh, you know, even if you go through the Earps, Sam Elliott is Virgil. Kurt Russell uh, is, is Wyatt. Bill Paxton is Morgan. We like all these guys. These yeah. charismatic actors. You know, like, we see this characterization of Morgan. And he's like, oh, he's just a cold-blooded killer. When yeah. Kirk tells us, shoots on sight, we're like, yeah, feels about right. Whereas if it were Bill Paxton, you'd be like, no, nah, man. <laughs> right i feel like the kevin koshner one for reasons that are probably not terribly surprising doesn't cast nearly as good you know people people with charisma and so forth in the roles of the Earp brothers right uh i think uh lyndon ashby plays morgan and i'm, I'm familiar with his i'm unfamiliar with his body of work unlike for example bill paxton <laughs> or i feel like i'm Right, exactly. Intimately uh, familiar <laughs> with his work. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> so back at the bar, Bones is using the bourbon to take care of Kirk's punched lip. Kirk says, it should say for external use only. Scott insists... <laughs> Scott insists, ah, it only takes a little while to get used to. Well, that was you know, Irish. interestingly enough, I feel like this kind of alcohol talk would move us more to the PG-13 rating today. Whereas, Probably. Whereas back in the 60s, they're like, yeah, you can talk about booze all you want, fellas. Right. We're selling it. So it's fine. <laughs> On TV. Those, those little kids watching all this booze talk, hey, it's totally cool. <laughs> Whereas today we live in a world in which, like, cigarettes are going to get you <laughs> bumped up a rating. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, no kidding. Bones suggests that Scotty should watch how much he drinks. He'd hate to think of what that's doing to his stomach lining. And your reflexes, says Kirk. We're going to need them. There's no talking the herbs out of this. Kirk then asks if we can build a communicator, but of course, no. There's no metal. There's no kind of power source. Chekhov is over talking to his barmaid. Apparently Morgan wants her, but she just loves Billy. Chekhov tries to play it cool by saying the many things uh, the many things in his life that have tried to kill him, but that nothing has been successful yet. Excuse me. Kirk you calls Billy. Faced the Belkosians yet? That's right. Dun dun dun. Or the Earps. Killy. Killy. What am I talking about? <laughs> It said Billy, and I got confused. 
Kirk calls Billy over and they uh, try to decide, uh, let's see if we can leave town. But as I said, there's a force field stopping them. What is our crew going to do? The bell tolls three. Dun, dun, dun. Only two hours left for our crew to hopefully solve this puzzle. So this then, is a good episode of uh, Roddenberry's Ticking Clock. Yeah, I was going to make mention of that later. But yes, that's absolutely true. I'm sure he loves every minute of it. And he does. <laughs> he does. Then Kirk decides, uh, maybe we need to put the Earps out of commission before five. Hmm, but what are we going to use, Kirk asks. What have we got? Nothing, says Spock. No power, no metal, no power source. But it's Chekhov who comes with the idea, and he says, we have cactus, we've got snakes, what are we going to do? But this gives, uh, this gives old McCoy a great idea. They uh, puts into motion an idea of gathering supplies to make a gas bomb to knock the Earps out. We follow McCoy to the dentist's office. He pulls a two thing or two out of the medicine cabinet and asks if he can borrow them. Ooh, but it's not the dentist that is giving the man a shave to the man in the chair. No, the man in the chair is actually Doc Holliday, and he's the dentist. McCoy then tells, uh, wait, wasn't, wasn't Holliday supposed to have, like, uh, syphilis or something? No, no, TB. He was supposed to have TB. He does. Uh, and, you know, he, if we think back to our... Dennis Quaid or Val Kilmer. Right. You know, both of them, you know, would have these episodes in which they looked like they were, you know, fine, healthy yeah. dudes who would then just have coughing fits, which is typical of, I mean, Nicole Kidman has tuberculosis in Moulin Rouge. Yeah. And she's able to go for, you know, entire scenes without a coughing fit. <laughs> yes, exactly. I guess the Malkosians felt that the, uh, that a, a sickness wasn't worth diving into. That's it's right. an extra part of the story. We don't need it. Anyway, so McCoy tells Doc Holliday that it is truly an emergency and he really needs these items. Oh, you have an emergency, all right, says a weird and swarmy Doc Holliday. Yeah. He, too, reminds McCoy that at 5 o'clock, it's the deadline, and at 5.01, the shooting starts. I, I, I could have gone with, I'll be your huckleberry. <laughs> you go ahead and take those. <laughs> We'll see you at five o'clock. <laughs> right. And Lee McCoy going, what the hell is a huckleberry? <laughs> <laughs> now McCoy would be like, yeah, we used to grow huckleberries back on the <laughs> part of the back 40. I'm <laughs> just an old country doctor. That's right. I, I'm familiar with your references. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chekhov now leaves the, gener uh, the general store, but Sylvia, the barmaid, is there waiting for him. She talks about the dance coming up next week, even showing him the material that she bought for uh, a dress just for the dance. But she's like, well, while I'm making this dress for a dance, when I could just make it a wedding dress. Oh, Billy, let's just turn the dance into a ball. Can, can you do that? I mean, can you just co-op somebody else's dance and make it your own wedding reception? <laughs> I mean, I guess that's one way to save money on a wedding. <laughs> Tell you what, honey, let's just go ahead and co-op that senior prom, all right? I know they've already got it decorated and there's a DJ and everything. We'll just tell our friends and families to meet us at the gymnasium. And, and in fact, we'll just keep the under-the-sea theme. <laughs> exactly. Well, her dress is blue, I mean. That's right, yeah. Uh, Chekhov correctly says that it would be impossible. Uh, you just don't know what I am, as he gestures to the uniform. I thought that was a nice little actor moment. Yeah, yeah. 
She says, Billy Clinton, I know that you're a, a thief, a bank robber, and I don't care what else. I love you. And they go to kiss. And just conveniently, as Morgan Earp walks by, he pulls Chekhov away and punches Chekhov. He then pulls Sylvia away and starts to march off with her. But Chekhov stands and says, get your damn hands off of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to future <laughs> reference. Sorry. Wait, this episode seems to be full of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Uh, Morgan then uh, shoves the lady away, and Chekhov stands, bloody nose, ready to duel. Chekhov just starts to walk forward. I don't know why he starts to walk forward, but he starts to walk forward, and Morgan shoots Chekhov right in the stomach. I'll be honest, I didn't see that coming. Sylvia screams, and then Kirk and Spock hear her and run towards Chekhov. McCoy leans down, touches the body, and says, There's nothing I can do for him, Jim. Which isn't what I thought he was going to say. I thought he was going to say, No, he's dead, Jim. Commercial, of course. Back to it. Morgan has, uh, is joined by the other Earps now. Come on, Clanton. Let's do this now, says Earp. Scotty is ready for the fight and tries to go for them, but Kirk stops him. They're trying to push us into something that we are not ready for, says Kirk. Spock, our time has not yet come. We cut to the bar. Kirk blames himself for Chekhov's death. He should have listened to Malcott's warning. So it's interesting. You meant, you brought it up earlier that we've got two different names for the uh, aliens in this. With They are the Malcots, but they are also the Malkosians. I was trying to think, is like one a descriptor? Like is Malcott's a descriptor? But I, I don't know, it doesn't really work. They just call them both. Them the Vulcanians. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> Another use of that. Anyway, Spock tries to push the conversation into a more productive one. But of course, this just makes Bones and Scotty angry. And they start giving him crack about, uh, crap about having no feelings. Chekhov is dead, says Scott. Spock... Uh, <laughs> this is great. Uh, McCoy says, Spock has no truck for grief, Scotty. It's too human. But you forget that I am half human, says Spock. That just kind of ends the discussion there. The bell tolls for a literal ticking clock. It, it's Spock. one of those nice callbacks to Galileo 7, right? Uh -huh. In which the crew is like, Spock, the way you're handling the death of our fellow crewmen is pissing me off! Right. Spock points out that uh, Billy Claiborne uh, did survive the Battle at the OK Corral. He gives this a moment for, the for this to seek in, sink in for the rest. History can be changed. Kirk now has hope. Spock, however, fears that it could uh, take them another hour to get this grenade done. And he's not even 100% sure that it will work. Kirk decides that they must buy some time. Let's try to negotiate. But the Earps won't. He's tried already. What else can they do? But then Kirk thinks, the sheriff! He goes and tells the sheriff to call it off. But the sheriff said, you were the one who wanted this. You uh, brought this on yourself. There's no going back. Was that the sheriff speaking, or was that the Malkosians? Who knows? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, this guy is terrified, right? Right. And I think the thing that terrifies him is that uh, Ike Clanton is acting out of character. Mm -hmm. And a guy who's not acting the way he's supposed to act, 
right? You try to, no, no, you did this. Every, you know, your whole life has brought you to this moment. And now suddenly you're like a whole different person who's like running away from it. You know, if I do what you ask, are you going to shoot me? Are you going to be the old I Clanton tomorrow and shoot me in the head for this? Right. You know, I, I don't know who I'm dealing with. Because you, if you were I Clanton, I would know what to do. <laughs> but you're freaking me out, dude, with all this, you know. Call it stuff. off. It's over. Yeah. Because I'm afraid that, like, the real I Clanton is showing up tomorrow. Right. And uh, and you're going to be pissed that I went along with this different approach. That I'm going to be a constant reminder that, you know, you had a moment of cowardice or whatever. And you're going to have to kill me for that because you don't want to be reminded of the time you were like, Call it off, man! Call it off! Game over, man! Game yeah, over! Game over! <laughs> You know, uh, Bill Paxton had a great run from about 1993 to 1998. I think yeah. his whole career is pretty good. I mm -hmm. always enjoy seeing him and stuff. But uh, starting with Tombstone, and then yeah. Lies, Frank and Jesse, Apollo 13, uh, Twister. Yep. And uh, Same cow. Yeah, I mean, that is just like, that is a series of movies for which you're like, Bill Paxton, all right. <laughs> you go, dude. Yeah. Kirk says to the sheriff, the people in this town must want to get rid of the Earps. They're counting on you for that, says the sheriff, but they must trust the law. Can't talk your way out of this after what the Earps did to Billy, he says. The fight continues until the sheriff says, uh, kill them anyway. You uh, I broke this down horribly. What am I saying? Kill them anyway. <laughs> That's right. Kill them anyway. <laughs> oh, I uh, I got it now. Kill them any way you can, he says. No one will question it. I'll see to it. Kirk doesn't like that answer, and the sheriff runs off. Oh, in fact, and this is this is nice because oftentimes we I, I alluded to it earlier. Our Star Trek people seem to know a little too much about the history they're reenacting from like a gazillion years ago. Like yes. we would we would know if we were suddenly transported into Versailles in uh, you know, <laughs> 1885 and there's Ben Franklin and, you know, Thomas Jefferson and, uh, you know, these various French aristocrats and right. like, like we would know what to do as opposed to like Ben Franklin going, dude. You are the most uncultured person I've ever... Don't you know how to handle a fork and knife or, like, bow to the, you know, king or acknowledge a duke? Where did, are you, like, from the back country of Kentucky? Who are you? And you're like, no, I'm from the 23rd century. I don't know anything about anything. Because that's really what would happen, right? Is you would not know how to go from moment to moment. Because all of your actions right. would be like, dude, you're insulting the duke. You can't, you know gesture in this way or stand like you can't just stand up and like everything you're doing is wrong <laughs> <laughs> how did and, you even get in here yeah exactly actually i teleported <laughs> exactly and so here we get a moment in which they don't know right they're confused <coughs> you think kirk is saying the law the law should solve these problems you're like yeah, sure, in the 23rd century. I mean, even in in the 1960s, 
right? You, you're going to go to Andy Griffith and, and get the fight resolved. Or uh, who's the dragnet guy? Uh, Jack Webb? Friday. Uh, Friday, Friday, yes. Yeah. Sergeant Friday, so thank you. You're, you're going to go to the law and you'll get it worked out, right? Yeah. This is, this is the Old West in which, as we remember, you've got the Clantons with their law and the Earps with their law. Mm-hmm. And they were just two different jurisdictions that were basically fighting over, you know, how stuff. And it's at this moment that Kirk realizes, oh, these ideas I like about how the law works, they don't apply to the Old West. Yeah. I had, I had put my hopes in this strategy and I'm realizing the law just isn't strong enough. People aren't just used to going, well, whatever the sheriff says, that's what we're going to do. Oh, you have no doubt that if, whether it's Sergeant Friday or, or Andy Griffith, walks into a situation that's, that's fraught, people are ready to fight, perhaps kill, and they could, they could talk everybody down. Yes. This isn't what we're about, gentlemen. We're Americans. We solve our problems peacefully through discussion, not through the you know, force of violence. I'm, I'm trying to do Sergeant Friday here. <laughs> but, Those are more John Wayne, but still, that works. I need the voice. But I mean, the, the idea that, like, Friday yeah. would say... Uh, you know, this is this isn't how we do things, gentlemen. Right? Yeah. This isn't the old West. Yeah. We're going to settle this, you know, with uh, according to the legal procedures. Yeah. Uh, I think Andy Griffith would do it in a more folksier manner, but the the gist would be the same, right? Yeah. Uh, this we're not going to we're not going to have a shootout. We're not going to fight this out. We're going to we're going to you know solve it over uh, Aunt B's rhubarb pie. Right. And and Kirk's like, oh wait a minute, the none of this is working. And I felt that was a good. Um, you are not in the world you think you are. You've defaulted to your own assumptions that you can stand up to the Duke, and the Duke won't be. Excuse me. Yeah. Did, did you just stand up while I remained seated? This is, uh, Larry. Would you take him out and you know <laughs> beat him with a cane for me? Because. <laughs> I'm not having any of this. Kirk comes back into the bar as Spock and Bo- uh, Spock gives Bones a compliment. This is also just a little bit of, uh, you know, yeah, these yeah. two mending things. Uh-huh. Which is uh-huh. good because you know, they'll have some tension and it's nice to see that, that they know how to put the kibosh on that and not let yeah. it test. How long till that thing's ready, says Kirk. Spock's estimations uh, seem to have been off because it's ready right now. Kirk demands a trial to make sure that it works, and Scotty volunteers. But not before one last shot of bourbon. Spock opens the can, and Scotty tries vaping. <laughs> Is that what he's doing? <laughs> I think so. I think that's what, he, I think that's what that was. Because it doesn't work. Uh, that's all I know. He does. He's not knocked out for sure. Cops. Uh, Spock keeps insisting that it should have worked. Kirk says, "Well, it doesn't matter now. It's ten to five. Yeah. So we get another. And you know, unfortunately, we as the audience kind of have to tease this out. But we get another example of like my theory of the scenario has proved to be incorrect. Yeah. Right. And at the beginning of the episode. They talk as if they understand the 
um, the cage dilemma. These mm-hmm. are telepaths, they're powerful, nothing is real, we can be fooled by anything. Why should we think that if we mix some chemicals, we're not just making cupcakes rather than a smoke grenade? Why are we, why do we think that our efforts, you know, won't just recapitulate what the Melkosians intend for us to be having doing the whole time? Right. And, you know, when Pike confronts the, his captors, he knows that he has to do stuff like, I need to go after my captors themselves. I need to lure them into a false sense of security and then, like, attack all them. Not, you know, attempt to manufacture a smoke grenade out of ingredients that I find, because it's all an illusion. This isn't the real stuff. But maybe that Malkosian isn't. Right? Maybe he's real. So I'm going to attack him. Or in, in the case of Cage, who are those guys? Are the Ordanians. Those are the people who are above balls alike. Oh, yeah. Uh... Oh, gosh. I don't know. But yeah, we so, look like great Star Trek fans now. Well, you know, the, the problem is we got so much Star Trek floating in the head. That's right. You know, we're up, we're up to what fifty-five episodes now. Yep. They're about so. <laughs> right, I got Memory Alpha up here already. I'll look it right up. <laughs> so we we do get this nice bit where his analysis was wrong. I just don't know why he went to the. But these are chemicals, and especially, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw this as some evidence for the the weird set is for the audience, not for them. If you were walking around in which buildings were only fronts and clearly had no backs, you would not be thinking. But wait, I mixed the right ingredients. Why did I not create a, a smoke concoction? Exactly. Yeah. You'd be like, well, of course, because everything's fake. Mm-hmm. The Melkosians didn't intend for us to make a smoke grenade. So what we've done basically is create a frosting canister. <laughs> That's right. He opens it up. He doesn't get smoke in the face. He gets frosting on his eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what he made? Mmm, <laughs> delicious mm. French vanilla. Telosians, by the way. That's what they were. They were there we Talosians. go. Yeah, Talos 4 or Talos 6. Or... Yep. So it's 10 to 5. Kirk says, well, then we are not going to move from this spot. And just as he <laughs> says that, boop, yep. transport over to the OK Corral. Because once again, the Malkosians are running the show. That's right. Commercial. Back from the black. They try to leave the OK Corral, but they can't. They are corralled in. Uh, Spock. Did <laughs> Spock makes his point uh, that he was trying to earlier. The chemistry should have worked, but it didn't. What killed Chekhov? It was his mind. He believed that the bullet would kill him, so it did. All of this is unreal. I know the bullets are, un- are unreal. Therefore, they cannot hurt me. Clearly, this is uh, how it works in Dungeons & Dragons, so Spock must be a gamer himself. That's right. <clears throat> I just need to With- make my will save. That's right. But I'm going to invoke my special feat, like Vulcan grip on reality. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> but McCoy says, but there will always be doubt. We're humans, not like you. We can't turn it on and off. So they decide they should mind meld. They, Kirk. It's Kirk all Kirk. <laughs> they should mind meld. The herbs make their way as Spock continues melding with each of the crew members. 
As the herbs arrive, Kirk puts his hand on a six-shooter, and the herbs fire, but the bullets pass right through them and into the fence behind them. Kirk moves forward towards Wyatt Earp, who continues to fire. He then sidekicks Wyatt, who falls. Kirk punches him one more time, then grabs the six-shooter. I think it's a real Kirk fighting here. Yep. Yep. But Kirk doesn't fire, of course. He throws the weapon aside. The herbs disappear. Then the corral disappears. They're back on the bridge. Chekhov is alive. And being tended to. (laughs) And being tended to, yeah. Uh, Nothing seems to be real to him except for the girl. Then the Malkosian object starts to emit M-rays. Whatever those are. Red alert! Deflectors on full. Kirk readies uh, phasers to fire, but the object explodes. The Malkosian appears on the screen. Captain Kirk, you did not kill. Is this the way of your people? It is. We only fight when there is no choice. I speak for a vast alliance of fellow creatures who believe the same thing. The Malkosians then allow them uh, to land on the planet. There's some ending dialogue here, which goes on a bit long, but it ends with Kirk saying that mankind survived by overcoming their instincts to kill. Credits. So it turns out there's two occasions in Star Trek in which we encounter M-rays. One is which Apollo's hand is holding uh, oh, the Enterprise, the mm-hmm. and Spock uh, says we need to generate a strong pinpoint of uh, M-rays to disrupt the hand. And, and here we have uh, the Malkotian buoy being the second example. So it's a thing! It's a thing. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about money here. I know it's something you like talking about. So the budget has been cut even further. The budget per episode now is $178,362. I already looked it up. So today's money, that is $1.45 million an episode. So even in today's money, that's hard to that's hard to do an episode of yeah. of Trek. If we consider that the first season of Discovery was between eight and eight point five million dollars an episode, even Doctor Who, which is far far cheaper, is still three million dollars an episode. Where everything happens at a gravel pit. Right. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm talking about modern day. <laughs> I'm talking about the new series, not back in the old days. But still, yes, $3 million an episode. So uh, the final cost of this episode was $182,000, right? Which is uh, four, basically $4,000 over the budget, which, of course, is uh, $1.48 million. So it was basically another $40,000 in today's money. So apparently, uh, Star Trek Discovery, they're doing about 8 to $8.5 million per episode. Right. That's crazy. So, you know, obviously, we know that Star Trek in this time period is something that's never been done before, right? We've never had this amount of special effects per episode. We've never had the sets, the different kinds of crazy sets that we need for these episodes, the sound effects, everything. If so we, if, we, if we go back, as we so often do, to I Love Lucy, 
right? We have basically one set, mm -hmm. their living room, and the actors are going to, you know, 90% of the action is going to take place there. Yep. Occasionally, we're going to have to redress something and make it look like a bedroom. Yep. And once in a while, they're going to leave the house, and Lucy's going to make some meat a veg of... Vitamin a vegman. There you go. Uh, or, or like eat a bunch of chocolates on an assembly line. And those are like simple dressed sets, right? Yes. I mean, that, that does not look like a factory. That looks like a room with a conveyor belt, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yes. And we just accept the conceit because it's hilarious to watch them eat those chocolates. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no money on that show in terms of like, like the, there's the one set and that's yep. it. And this, this, they're like every episode, they're going someplace new. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of bottle episodes. But even then, you know, we're likely to have lights or special effects or, you know, we got to make a planet or we got to put an alien out in space. We got to do something. Yeah. We can't just have, you know, Ricky come in and go, hello, say I'm home. <laughs> yes. And go, that, that, there we go. The humor has begun. <laughs> I mean, you know what else? So there's Lost in Space. You've got... Uh, I can't think... I really can't think of anything else. I mean, even, you know, a show like F Troop. You're basically going out in the middle of nowhere. And the guys are running around in their costumes. You know, it's, we're paying for extras and, the, and you know, a guest star. Uh-huh. And we're just used to shooting in a in a some ranch that we've rented right. where we do our cowboy stuff or our, look, it's the Dakotas. I mean, it's, it's famous how much Western stuff really takes place within like a two hours drive of Los Angeles. Yeah. And if that's how you're operating, you're, you're, that's not expensive. Yeah. Star Trek doesn't work that way. No. And so that's the thing. So, but I mean, you know, you look at Paramount, who's like, we don't even know what we have here. You know, the show's only doing so great in the ratings. Um, you know, and of course they don't know, as you've stated, they don't know about the great, you know, yeah. uh, 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 audience that they have for this show. So, you know, so for them, they're like, we just don't get it. This is what you're getting to, yeah, to, make, yeah. to make it. And especially if NBC's, you know, and part of it's NBC's fault because NBC gave them such a crappy time slot. You know, if they would have gotten that prime time slot, maybe Paramount would have opened the purse strings a little bit further. So, you know, if we compare that to where we are today, mm -hmm. in which CBS is basically saying we want Star Trek to anchor yep. Paramount Plus, we want to have continuous Star Trek. We want, we, we're going to have like five or six shows. Yep. There's always we, we our goal is to always have Star Trek on TV every week. Yeah. And we understand that we're currently making, you know, 10 to 12 episode shows. So, you know, in the spring, it's going to be Picard. And then in the summer, it's going to be uh, the uh, Lower Decks. And then it's going to mm -hmm. be uh, Strange New World. And then it's right. going to be Prodigy. And then it's going to be uh, the... Georgiou, the spy. Uh, 51. Area 51. No, no, <laughs> Area 51. Uh, I don't remember the name. Dang it. Yeah. 
yeah. with secret group of spy dudes. Yes, and, that's and so, Yeah, and they're talking about doing a kind of um, like one-off show anthology series in which we could just do a George Takai episode in which, you know, he's old and, you know, reflecting on whatever. And then we could do a episode in which we go back and we revisit something from Star Trek lore. And then we could do an episode where we, because people are suddenly willing to do Star Trek again. Yeah. In a way that people for a while have been like, nope, done that, been there. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, they did those shorts, which I thought were so cool. And you could easily imagine going to a group of writers and going, you know, you got one or two episodes, you know, pretty much focus on one unless you got a great two-parter. And you just write whatever you want, right? And, you know, the sky's the limit. It just needs to be Star Trek. And you could get some amazing one-off stories. Because yeah. I thought we had some amazing tracks, uh, you know, the short tracks. That, like, you're like, what is this connected to? How does this relate to anything else? And, well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it was just cool. Yep. Few more I, notes here. Oh, go ahead. It's, it's like the exact opposite, right? Today they're like, we're going to build our network around it. We're going to spend, you know, whatever yep. it takes. Nine million, we'll do it. Because we know the audience will, will love it. And that maybe we're going to have five Star Treks on at one time. Each yep. of them doing these you know, short little bits. And back then, you know, as you're saying, they're like, I, I don't even know who watches this. Why yeah. would, is anybody, no, they're all watching Gomer Pyle. And Gomer Pyle makes sense. Yes, exactly. I get why that's good television. So in its new, uh, this is the sixth episode to air, by the way. Uh, if you go on Paramount Plus, you'll see it is the sixth episode. Uh, even with its crappy 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central and Mountain time slot that it has, it took in 9.2 million viewers, barely losing to the show in front of it, which is a show I've never even heard of called Judd for the Defense. Oh, yeah. And there was only five percentage points separating the top three. I think the top was 31 and Star Trek was 26%. Only half of the third season episodes were given repeat broadcasts by NBC. Justman had selected the episodes for seasons one and two, but Freiberg's turn to do it. Uh, he uh, did repeat Spectre of the Gun. Freiberger believed that it was probably the best of the third season. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a good episode. Well, it's funny, too, because this... Uh, episode suffered for a long time. Like in the 90s, a lot of people put, pointed to this one of like, ah, look at what they did in season three. This is a great example of like the great. But it seems like over the years, people have sort of like stepped back and been like, you know, this has actually got a lot of really cool stuff in it. Yeah, I I, I do think it's it's got, you know, some weird stuff, right? You've got the sets that don't look dressed and like, is it yep. because it's dream or is it because the Malkosians are making a mistake is it the Melkosians like it's just a giant puppet or yeah. not, not even a puppet because it doesn't move it's just a statue that talks you know there's stuff to it where I can see them going ah whatever I do think we've kind of come around in our ability to go back and watch early science fiction and not be like oh the special effects are lame yeah 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 
Well, that is it. That's all I've got for this episode. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I do think that uh, it's worth pointing out that Judd, the defense, had as a regular, you know, recurring actor a, a guy named Ed Asner. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Well, Richard Dreyfus was on a couple episodes. Really? Well, yeah. So it's it's these young guys before they, you know, this is obviously right before Mary Tyler Moore, right? Right. Which will be Ed Asner's real breakout role. Yeah. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, I think, we're gonna wait for uh, the movie with the cars Jaws? and the Ron oh, Howard. Oh, you're right. Uh, American Graffiti. Yeah, and then Jaws right after that. Yep. Which is yeah. So, uh, Tyne Daly, Robert Duvall. Even Ron Howard. Even Ron so, Howard. Yeah. So there you go. Well, it's, it's, as you can imagine, for a police drama, right, you're going to need various the people who are around, judges, defendants, and prosecutors. All righty. Well, that'll wrap it up for this week. Spectre of the Gun. Great episode. I really enjoyed it. Next week, we have Elon of Troyes. That'll be next week's episode. So, uh, well, two weeks. Two weeks episode. Of course I have it. Two weeks episode. We'll see you in two weeks. Coming to you from Austin is me. I'm Matt. Coming to you from Planet Houston, my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. I'm a doctor, not a spiritualist. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs>